0: And we've been exploring some incredible themes. John has brought forth some stuff that is powerful stuff. And and I want to review. And I want to take a little time to review. Because I think some of these things we need to keep in our head. But before I do that, I just got to mention one or two quick things. First of all... Along with our small groups, on Sunday mornings from 9 to 10, Bill Cumbie is teaching a series on the book of Hebrews. So that if you would like to come, like if you're busy during weeknights and weekends and all those times, but all you do is come an hour or so earlier to church, and you can sit through a study of the book of Hebrews, which has some incredible truths, and I highly recommend it. So that when, at the end of the service, when our small group leaders come up, I'm going to ask Bill also to come up and stand over here. It's not technically a small group, but it will function sometimes like that. But it is based on an expository study of the book of Hebrews. And and I I encourage you very much to think about it. Uh, Next thing is the paint the word night. If you're interested and you just go, well, not so sure about the whole $40 thing. We have people who will help you pay for it. If you want to come, we don't want that to be the reason that keeps you from coming. Um, I also want to highlight just the prayer meeting uh, Wednesday mornings from 6.30 to 7.30. If you can come by, even for part of it, I encourage you to do that. It's, it's, it will be a great time. Finally, huh, finally. We, the, for the month of August, we've collected food for Thrive, which works uh, with people who are struggling and works with them financially, works them, they, have, they have a food pantry, and so we, we uh, did the food pantry, and with some of the last stuff we got today, we, we gave almost 1,000 pounds of food to Thrive over the month of August. It's the biggest amount of food they've gotten from a church yet, so what up? Yeah. We're the best. <laughs> And we just ruined the blessing by doing, I just ruined it by doing that. Okay. But I really appreciate it. You know, and I said this before, there are children who got meals that they wouldn't have gotten because of you. And so that's a great thing. And we will have more ongoing stuff. This uh, Thrive works with clothes. They work with food. They work with all kinds of areas. And, and we're going to be involved with that in the upcoming coming months and give you ways that you can be involved, simple, easy ways that you can be involved in helping in our community. Okay, I want to read 3, 4, 5, and 6 from 1 John chapter 2. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. All right, so let's review a little bit. First thing, key thing to remember, John is writing to Christians. He's writing to Christians, and he's saying, what does God want from us? What does God want for us? And he says, God has this intimate fellowship that he wants to have with us. And the point is, is that there are very many Christians who are walking and living and, and going through life, but they're missing that intimate fellowship. They're missing what God has designed them for. They're missing the best that God has for them. And he's saying it's possible. It's possible to have a personal relationship with God, to experience, and he said that at the very beginning, joy, to experience the joy that comes with that relationship. And it is based on a message. Chapter one, he says, we have this message. What is the message? God is light. In him, there is no darkness, never. Remember the Greek, it's very strong, never. He emphasizes it two times over. And so God is holy. God, we are sinful. John goes through that. And Jesus is our advocate. Jesus is the one who stands for us. And he's not just our advocate. Another word for this, too, is he talks about, is in, in, in scripture, we get this word from, he is our legal proxy. And that's an important thing for us to do because when we believe in Jesus Christ, when we accept him as our Savior, anything he has achieved, we now have achieved. Anything that he does, now it's as if we did it. It is as true as us of us as if we had done it ourselves. And so, because he died for us, it is, is, as if it is as if he died. We died. Yeah, that's that's a theologians. Theologians would call this substitutionary atonement. That is a substitute atoned for my sins. A substitute brought the atonement with me and God and so now he lives and his life is ours and so now God when he looks at Jesus and he sees his righteousness when he looks at us he sees that righteousness and so we are loved and we are honored by the father as if we had lived the righteous life that Jesus lived we are loved and honored by the father as if we had done the righteous deeds that Jesus did this is what a proxy does and this is something that's not unheard of in scripture Let me give you an Old Testament example of this. And this is um, kind of a long rabbit trail. But remember David and Goliath? Of course, you remember David and Goliath. That's a rhetorical question. All right. But I want you to see something. There are two ways that the story of David is utterly different than from hero stories that we're used to. All those heroes, maybe you've read Hercules and Odysseus and Beowulf and Seger and King Arthur, all those hero stories They're very similar in certain ways, and the David story is different and subversive to those stories, and let me show you why. First thing, the Savior in the David story is weak. He's little. He's too small for armor. He doesn't wear any armor, and he is successful he is, I should say this, he is not successful in spite of his weakness, he is successful because of his weakness. In his weakness, he is successful because he looks so small and he looks so silly and it's kind of like it is a joke. Because of that, he wins. He is the hero. So first thing, God's savior is weak and saves through his weakness. The second thing in the David and Goliath story is God's savior is a representative, not an example, not an inspiration. He is a substitute. I mean, this is key. And, And I think a lot of times people miss this in the story of David and Goliath. He is not, I mean, he is a good example, but he's in that story. He's not my example. I'm not supposed to be David He's not my inspiration. Because in the story of David and Goliath, David is a representative. He is a proxy. I mean, look at 1 Samuel 17, 8 and 9. It should be on your screen there. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects, and serve us. Okay, so this is, he's asking for a representative. Goliath is not saying, let's let our armies fight. Come on, let's go. He says, no, just send one-on-one. Whoever wins, they all win. Whoever loses, they all lose. You see what's going on there? He's a proxy. He's a representative. He's a champion. Goliath is the champion of the Philistines. And Saul sends out David as his champion in that story who are we we're all those soldiers lined up on the edge of the valley going i'm gonna die i'm a goner look at how big it's not just goliath they're all big they have armor i've got a sharp stick you know they got bronze we don't have any bronze they got all the latest technological weapons. They got all the latest. They have everything. We're goners. We're going to send out David for you. I'm better him than me. And so what happens? I'm hopeless and helpless in this situation. David. David is the champion. He is the representative. He is the proxy. And so this is what's key here. David is is not. Uh, he's not just fighting for them. He's fighting as them they will be treated as if they had done what he, whatever he does. If he wins, it will be as if the whole army won. If he loses, it will be as if the whole army loses. If he is brave, they will be treated as people who are brave. And if he is a coward, they will all be treated as cowards. You see, this is, this is that biblical idea we've been talking about, of imputation, something is transferred from one person's account to another. If David kills Goliath, that death, that kill, that victory is transferred to me. It's imputed to my account. And see, this is what's key about this story. David is the proxy. He's the champion. So what difference does it make to us? David's hero story is radically different from all the other hero stories. It makes all the difference in the world. In Hebrews chapter 11, what do we have in Hebrews chapter 11? We have these great heroes of the faith that we are told to remember. And in, and in Hebrews 12, too, Verses 12, 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, all these people who have gone on before us, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin which so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, interesting thing there. He does not say fix your eyes on Abraham. He does not say, fix your eyes. Any one of those great heroes of the faith in the previous chapter, he doesn't say, fix your eyes on them. He says, they're watching you. They're the witnesses that are watching you. Who does he say to fix your eyes on? Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author. Now, author is, is uh, it's a Greek word, archagos, And archagos is the word you would translate champion. See, David was the champion of Israel. And Israel won because David won. It was transferred to Israel. And I want you to see, Jesus Christ is your champion. And because he won, it's been transferred to you. Because sins have been paid for. Your sins have been paid for. He is your champion. And so they say, he's the one that began your faith. So they translate it, author. It's not a bad translation, but it's that word for champion. God sent the ultimate David. His name was Jesus Christ. And he was weak. And he was small. He wasn't anything super great. He did not save us in spite of his weakness, but he saved us through his weakness. He did not save us from physical death like David did, but from eternal death. And he did not save us at the risk of his life like David. It cost him his life. And he went into the ultimate valley of death, and he became our champion. He became our champion. Now this is an interesting thought when you start to think about this. Our God is courageous. Jesus Christ had incredible courage to do what he did because he became human, he became vulnerable, he needed courage. No other belief system comes close to this idea. He had to be brave to face his greatest fear. He faced it in the garden of Gethsemane. And I remember, he said, "God, take it away. I don't want it. Take it away." And God didn't respond. He says, "Okay, I want your will, God. Above what I want, I want your will." He was afraid. He was weak. But he says, "But but for the joy set before him, he endured." What is that joy? We've talked about this before. What is that joy? It's you. It's you. It's me. Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And the word Gethsemane means the crushing, the crushing stone is what it literally means. And he was being crushed, it says he bled. He was being crushed. Why? Because the gates of hell were opening wide and he was go- knew what he was going to experience was something he had never experienced before. The sins of the whole world, separation from the Father. And he cried out. Literally, in the Greek says it sh- he shrieked in agony. God, please, no. And then he saw me. And then he saw you. And he said, I will go. I will do it for Bob. I will do it for you. I will do it. Who for the joy set before him. Probably one of the greatest theological films ever made is the film called Hook with Robin Williams in it. Because Robin, Peter Peter Pan couldn't fly. He'd grown up and he couldn't fly. Why couldn't he fly? He'd forgotten his happy thought. And they said, Peter, if you just get your happy thought, you will fly. And then one day he says, to his son, Jack. I found it, Jack. I found my happy thought. It's you. It's you, Jack. You're God's happy thought. He thinks of you and it brings him great joy. Envisioning Jesus dying on the cross is not what does it. It is seeing Jesus dying on the cross for me. For me. Me personally. You personally. And so when he says, fix your eyes on Jesus, he's, he's saying, look, there's lots of great examples out there. There's Abraham. There's, there's David. There's prophets. There's people. They gave their lives. He says, but fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Because he did this for you. He is your champion. And so we have this message that he's talking about in the very first, this is the longest introduction I've ever done. He, he had this, yeah, I hope guys are free till two. Um, we have this message. He says, we brought you this message. And what is that message? The message is basically the gospel. But he says, it's God, it is light. And he starts explaining that message and it's, it's, it's the gospel. Without knowing that message, we can't have that Fellowship. And so point one on your sheet there and on the screen is, number one, assurance comes by walking in the light. And verse three says, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. And so he says, we know this. This is present tense. We're learning this. This is experiential knowledge. It's a word for it, very very experiential thing. And it leads to a great doctrine, the doctrine of assurance. And he's saying you have this desire to obey and so because of that you're walking in the light and the light is exposing the things that are wrong with you and you are confessing them. That's the whole first chapter right there. He says, he says walk in the light. And walking in the light is not the place where you never do anything wrong. Walking in the light is the place where the things you do wrong are exposed. That's the key. That's what God wants He just wants you to see. And then it says, you see them, and then you confess. And the word confess, we went through this. The word confess is agreeing with God. The other day, oh, I need to say this. Uh, Last week, I just need a point of clarification. Last week, I had a little bit of an issue with another driver on the road, and I reached out of my car, and I said, pull over, move over from, you were going, they were going slow, and I was saying, move to the other lane. And I was informed that some people thought I meant something else. Some people thought I was saying, you're number one, you're number one. And I wasn't. I was saying, move over. I would never, I I would never do that other thing. I would never. You know why? Because it would probably be you in the other car and the word would get back and I would get fired. So for the sake of my job, not anything spiritual, for the sake of my job, <laughs> I don't do that. And some people got that idea and I, I didn't realize that so I need to think through my illustrations better all right so confessing is agreeing with God I do something wrong the Holy Spirit begins to work in me illuminate says Bob that that was wrong it was and so I confess I agree with God God that was wrong and I'm cleansed he says this is that process that we're in and God says that's where I want you Don't think you're ever going to be in the place where you never do wrong. No, if you walk in the light, more and more is going to get exposed. As the light gets more intense, as you stay more in it, more and more gets exposed. And so more and more is seen. So more and more has to be confessed. That's where God wants you. That's what it is. And so he says in verse three. Now we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. Now the word "obey" is a very interesting word. I don't always want to zero in on some of these words. But this is a key word because it's the word it's the word to guard something, to watch something, to take care of something. It's the idea that you have found something that's incredibly precious. All right. Let's suppose you're walking out of here and you, and 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 you walk over to look at the construction site, and in a pile of dirt you see something glint, kind of sparkly. And you go through it a little bit, and it's—I uh, don't know what—you know, a piece of gold or something, a pearl of great, or somebody's watch or something. I don't know what it is, but you recognize that. Actually, you, uh, let's say it's a watch, you know, and you go, "Oh my goodness, this watch!" And you kind of clean it up, looking and on the front you say, "You see, Rolex." Hmm. This watch now suddenly has become very valuable, right? So do you go, I hope they find it, and you go walking off? No, no. Now, hopefully, if you're a nice person, you will try to find who the owner is, but secretly, you'll be hoping you never do, right? That's what will be going on inside, because now you've got something. You know, you look this up, you go, man, this watch costs $50,000. Wow, wow. Okay, do you just leave it laying around all the place? Do you just kind of put it down and say, I hope I remember where I put it? Not if it's 50 grand, man. No, you don't. You stick it in your pocket. You keep your hand there. You you do whatever you can. Because why? Because it has become something that is very important to you. And you keep an eye on it. And you look at it. And you investigate it. He's saying this is something that's very important. And you take steps to make sure it's safe. That is, you take concrete actions to safeguard it. And to keep an eye on it. To keep it right in front of you. It is so highly regarded by you that it changes your behavior. If you have that watch and somebody says, you know what, I'll give you 40000 Okay. Now you got $40,000. And you just walk around. Hey, guys, guess what I got? Hey, everybody, look at this. To the, you know, showing it off till the first person with a gun takes it from. No, you start. You, what do you do? It changes your behavior. It will change your behavior. If you find something that's incredibly precious, it will change what you do in big ways and small ways. And so what he's saying here is we have, this, we have this gospel and he's saying we obey his commands. And that word means we keep this thing very tightly. We hold on to it. We look at it and it changes our behavior because it's worth so much. Because it is so Precious. And, the, and just a real quick, the word for command there is, is, is not the word that it would usually be used for the law. So it seems to me he's pointing to the words of Christ. He's, now, Christ quoted the law, so it doesn't leave the law out. But it's this idea of it's, it's more than that. It's what Christ has spoken to us. So in, intimacy, closeness comes from me regarding the words of Christ so highly that I watch them continually and my actions reflect them more and more. And as I do that, it changes me. The Word works in me. The Spirit works in me. And I am changed from the inside out. And I see changes begin to happen. I begin to tap into the power of the Word by the Holy Spirit. And so understanding the gospel means that you understand that this kind of assurance is possible. Now, John's going to write a whole lot more about this in this book. We're going to be going all over this in the next few months. But for some people, the Christian life It's just a bunch of moral codes. It's a bunch of externals. And the problem we always have is, if it's externals, how do I know I do enough? How do I know I go to church enough? How do I know, how how much Bible reading is enough? How much prayer is enough? How much giving is enough? How much serving is enough? How do I ever know if I've done enough? And no one can do enough. If you're living by a moral code, you have not grasped grace yet. And assurance is, is what the, the key is in this situation because assurance moves us to growth. How do we have that assurance, he says. He says this, we know we've come to know him when we obey his, when, when we obey his commands. And that word, remember, his commands become important to us. They're highly regarded to by us. They begin to change. We keep them in front of us and they begin to change the way we live. And I know you can say, well, okay, Bob, the going to church part and the Bible and the giving and, and the serving and the praying, we're, we're supposed to do that, right? Yes. Yes. And we have to, in, 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 as we consider this, we have to think about all that we've learned so far. John did not write these verses apart from the previous ones. He's already told us we're all sinners. He's already told us we, we all sin, so perfectness, perfect obedience is out. He's told us we have a remedy for sin that God has ordained. He's told us he wants us to walk in the light. He wants us to allow the light to point out sins. As the Holy Spirit illuminates them and we see them, he wants us to deal with them, to confess, to say the same thing. Confess means that, to say the same thing that God would say about that. Saying, God, I know that's wrong. You say that's wrong. I know that's wrong. We confess, and then it says the blood cleanses us. We struggle, we confess, the blood cleanses, and this process is all what happens as we walk in the light. And so, obeying God is walking in the light. Dealing with sin is a part of obeying God. Confession is walking in the light. This is what glorifies God, because we're doing what he has commanded us to do. You you see, some of this is not, it's not so difficult to grasp if I try to walk according to his word and the light shows me things I'm doing wrong and I agree with God, I confess it and the blood cleanses, I am doing what he's told me to do and he's glorified in it and he's glorified in it and so we have that assurance then. If God is pointing out to you things that you're doing wrong in your life, that's because the light is operating in your life and you are walking in it to one degree or another, you're walking in it. You are pleasing him by doing what he says he wants you to do. Why does he want you to do that? Not for his sake, for yours. Because he knows what's best. He knows what he wants to do with your life. He has this plan. He has purposes. He has meaning. And it starts with walking in his light. And he says, if you're walking, if you're seeing, if sin is being exposed in your life, then you're where I want you. You can have that as an assurance that you are one of mine. Now, here's the peak of of assurance on the screen. Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation would be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How did Paul face the things he faced? How did he do what he did? He had an assurance. And he encompasses it there in those two verses. He says, I am so sure of the love of God, I'll face anything. There's nothing that can separate me from the love. Bring it on. Bring it on. One of my wife's favorite players on the Boston Red Sox is a guy named Joe Kelly. The reason why he's her favorite player on the Boston Red Sox is that earlier in the season when they had a series with the Yankees, the Yankees, there there was a little bit of shenanigans going on and people were plunking other people with the baseball and Joe Kelly hits a guy and the guy looks at him like he's coming out and Joe Kelly goes, come on. And then my wife said, That is my favorite player. (laughs) Right there. Because he said, Bring and this is Paul. This is Paul. I am so assured of who I am in Jesus Christ. Bring it on. I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it. Paul, you you know, you're gonna you're gonna get the crap beat out of you. Okay. You may die. Okay. For me to die is gain. I go to be with Jesus. And so he had that assurance. And we know when we look at the heroes of the faith in Hebrews, they had that assurance. Hebrews 11, 1 and 2, I want to read that to you. He says, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Now, this is an interesting verse, especially that part. They were commended for this. And that's an interesting word. Because, you know, with those men and women of God that he lists, because many of them paid paid for it with their lives, their faith. What enabled them, those men, those women to suffer for God? Did they ever doubt? I'm sh- Yes. Did they never have a breakdown? No, I'm sure they had a. Did they never have any problems? I'm sure they had problems, but they had something extra and it's that word commended. It means, it means there's a witness that's been given. Somebody has testified. It's another legal term. Uh, somebody has testified for them. It's like, it's like that trial scenario again, except now you're in a trial and it's going terrible. And somehow you've been placed at the scene of a crime. And you're like, I was not there. I was not there. And everybody, oh, yes, you were. Yes, you were. They have witnesses. And suddenly they bring up a surprise witness who goes, you know what? He wasn't there. I have evidence that he was, over the, he was not in that place. And you're let off. That witness comes and that witness changes everything. It proves you are not guilty. What happens? He says they have this, condemn, uh, this commendation. That is God has assured them that they are his. that He has assured them that they knew him. And then the result was they could face anything. You, know, you think about that. This is what got, G- got Jesus. Jesus is going to his baptism. And coming up is 40 days in the wilderness with Satan. And then Three and a half years or so of being misunderstood and finally killed. And he gets a witness, he gets a commendation at his baptism. God says, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You are my son. There's this condemnation, I want to say condemnation, commendation. There is this assurance of who he is. John is saying you can have that assurance that is possible for you to have. The assurance that those heroes of the faith had. The assurance that Jesus Christ had. That kind of assurance. The assurance that Paul had. That is available to you. He's saying this, this is what you can have. Now this this witness, this, this assuring is, is an empowering thing. Yeah, and... and this is not so, We see this all the time in popular culture, right? It, it happens all the time. And I'm not as up on some of the newer movies, but Rock, this is not a newer movie. Rocky and Adrian. And who is Adrian? She's this, she's this incredibly shy, you know, just totally inward. And he woos her. And he keeps telling her good things about her. He keeps loving her and it draws her out. Probably one of the ones I've seen that is, that is in one short span is, is very powerful. There's a movie called The Fisher King. And in this, in this movie, Robin Williams plays a guy named Perry. And uh, Amanda Plummer plays a, a woman named Lydia who's a very incredibly painful, shy, painfully shy and clumsy and, and everything. And there's, one, there's just this one great scene where he's taking her out on a date. And it's just been a, a, a fun time. They've had a great time. And she goes, I know what's going to happen, though. And he says, what? What are you talking about? She goes, you're going to come up to my apartment and we're going to have something and we're, we're going to sit down. And we're going to get to know each other a little better. And it's going to be a lot of fun. And we're going to have something to drink. And then you're going to stay the night in my apartment. And then in the morning, no, you don't have time for breakfast. You really have to go. And then you leave. And I never hear from you again. I know what's coming. I don't want that. And she starts to leave. And he's like, wait, 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 wait. And he calls her back and he goes, I, I, I don't want to go up to your apartment. That's not what I want he goes, I just want to get to know you. I think you're wonderful. And he just starts going through this where he's just telling her, her, and she's looking at him like, you're not a real person. You're not a real person because you seem to care about me. And she's very suspicious. She thinks he's going to get her somehow. She thinks that, and he's fighting that because he wants to tell her, I just love you. I just love you. That's all. And what is it? She had a witness. She had a commendation and it draws her out. It takes some time, but it draws her out and a relationship flowers because of it. And it happens, we see this all the time because we are people who respond to those things. And Jesus says, I'm giving you a witness. God says, I am satisfied with you. I love you. There's this objective truth. Jesus is our legal proxy. What he did has been transferred to us. And this works in our life as we begin to walk in the light. And his word is in front of us because it's so incredibly precious to us. And we live in it and we abide in it and fruit is produced and we see changes and we wrestle with sin instead of not caring about sin. And then this is the assurance that we have as we wrestle and we work through these things. This is the assurance that we are his. And so we have this objective truth, but this now is the subjective truth. I see it in my life. Now, I know you might be thinking, okay, that sounds great. I'm still kind of struggling with this assurance thing. That's okay, because John's going to address this. We're going to go over this a lot. We're going to deal with this a lot as we go through this book. But I want you to see there is this point where objective truth, this is what's true, meets subjective truth. This is where I live, this is what I feel. And they come together, they come together. Point two, I want you to see walking in the darkness is living a lie. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And this verse is like a flip side of the verse we just looked at. There were people in those days that would say, I have experienced God, I've experienced him, I know him. But they would not even attempt to live according to his word. Their lives would be totally opposite of that. That is, they were not struggling with their sin they just shrugged their shoulders and said, I'm I'm evil, it's okay. And they wanted to say they were following Christ. And John is fighting that. They're not willing to do the hard work of trying to walk in the light. They're not willing to allow the Holy Spirit to illuminate their sin and deal with it. There was no healthy self-examination. They were happy to walk in darkness. They were happy to be there. And they were believing a lie. Remember, when you walk in darkness, the light is not there. You're avoiding it. You remember as a kid playing hide and seek? When I was a kid, we used to, I think it was back when kids could play outside safely. And and we would go out in the evening and we'd play hide and seek and someone would count. You know, you had to count to whatever it was for you, 50 or 100. It was usually 30 for me because I was a slow counter. But you'd just start counting and everyone would run and hide. What was the point? The point was to find the darkest place to avoid. And every once in a while, I remember one time one of my friends cheated. He brought a flashlight and we're all, we're all like, what the heck? You can't have light. Light exposes. And he's saying there are people who are hiding from the light. We, we dealt with this last week in Romans chapter 6, and I, I need to move on. Look, Point number three, the motivation of love. And this point I'm just going to deal with real quickly because we're going to spend a good amount of time as we talk about it more in the upcoming weeks. But in verses five and six, he says, but if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we're in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. And so he's saying, God's love is being completed in a person who, who begins to keep his word. To be in the light as he is in the light. He says, they're in the light. The truth is in them. And, and this, this word complete has this idea of not that it's finished, but it's, it's doing what it was made to do. His love is being perfected in us. is working through us. And I, I just want to say here, God has a plan. And this plan is based on the fact that he loves you. And he wants you to love him. And when you show your love as you revere and obey his word, this plan begins to work in your life. It's not completed, but it is working. Not in the sense that it, you're doing it for, for any specific reason. It's, you're doing it because you love him. And this was the difference with the Pharisees of Jesus' day. The Pharisees looked at, at the law as a burden. It was something they worked through. They ignored the fact that there was great joy in it. Psalm 119 talks about the joy that comes from the word of God. Your word is like, it's sweet like Honey. He goes over and over and over, in, in someone, and, and the Pharisees and many of the Jews, they'd warp that into, into this oppressive thing that they, they did, and they showed off to everybody how much they were suffering for God. And here he's saying, no, there's this wonder, there's this joy, there's this sweetness when you value the word, when you keep it, when you obey it, when you hold it tightly because it is so important. When you're walking in the light, and the Spirit is working in you and enabling you, then we become more like Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is where we flourish. And life becomes more than just existing on this planet. And I know I meet people sometimes who say, oh, I struggle with doubting my salvation. I think of it this way. When I was younger, when I wasn't a Christian, one time my older brother came and, and he started talking to me about Jesus. And, and I, I didn't grow up in a Christian family. And uh, church was a formality occasionally that we went to. And I remember listening to him as he explained the gospel to me and kind of walking away and going, huh, there, there might be a God. Man, he might be. Girls. Right? I wasn't interested. I didn't care. I didn't care if there was a God. I didn't care if he was interested in me. I was more, you know, I was more like, hey, baby. Uh, actually... I was too much of a nerd to be able to say, hey, baby, to a girl. So it's not really, that's kind of of made up. But when I didn't know Jesus, I didn't care. I didn't care about walking in the light. I didn't care about any of that stuff. I was happy in the dark. I thought I was happy in the dark. And if you're struggling sometimes with your salvation, let me tell you something. The very fact that you're struggling shows that God is doing something in your life. God is working on you. He's dealing with you. I can't sit here and tell you whether or not you're saved or not. That's something you work out with God. But the fact that you care about salvation points to God working in your life. And he says, he says, finally in this, he says, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Now he's saying, look at Jesus as an example. But here's his point. He says, when you walk in the light, you begin to walk like Jesus did. It happens Because, why? Because, remember that verse we looked at. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus is our champion and the perfecter. Jesus is in the business of making you more like him. And he is not going to stop. He's not going to stop until he's done. Now that will happen, finally, when he calls us up to heaven. But he's saying, as you just try to be in the light... This is what happens. This whole process happens. But you don't have to think through and work all the... You just try to be in the light. And what does he say that means? He says that means taking his words and making them important to you. Important to you. Making them of great value to you. And then you will start to keep them, obey them. And then you will walk in the light. And then you will be more like Jesus. And it will begin happening because that's how he works in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for 1 John, the, the, just the truth that is packed into this, these verses. And Lord, um, we just pray that we would find ways to revere your word in our lives, to make it precious to us, to understand what you have done, that what Jesus has done as our proxy. And now that we reap those benefits because of that. And we thank you for that, Lord. What else can we do? What else can we say except thank you? In Jesus' name, amen.